Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. Fear the Reaper, it's a scary movie. Don't fear the Reaper, cause you're gonna die. Pino, Nino, no, Nino. What's happening, everybody? It is I, your horror buff, killer man, bruiser, Holden McNeely. Stab, 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 Jake. And it's I, your final girl wizard, Jake. <laughs> I lived thanks to my pluckiness. My favorite form of Jake is final girl wizard form. <laughs> it does sound like something from a JRPG. Yeah, it does. You fool, I've collected all the crystals. Now I, I have become final girl. Final wizard. girl form. God lair uh, wizard boy. Final girl form. God lair wizard boy is not the episode we're doing this week, though. That will have to wait. Done. 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 Bum, 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 bum. Spooky October! Yeah, by the way, it's Spooky October, so if you're listening Blah! to this as it comes out, we are uh, we, we have planned, and we'll probably do this every year now, because what a fun thing to do. Every episode in Hold the in. month of October will be spooky. No, no, no. I, I'm declaring it right now. We're not doing Spooky October every year. Every month, every year gets its own special month. Maybe next year we do Jolly December, oh, and it's all Christmas shit. It's all Christmas shit. Maybe, uh, maybe the year after that we do Fuck It, It's April. Fuck It, It's April. <laughs> Uh, Easter. No, we'll do Easter. Oh, yeah. He is risen. Bunny or Jesus-related content. That would actually be kind of (laughs) cool. Shit! But but not the December. December is not Jesus-related. Absolutely not. We will definitely only be... You said just Christmas, even though you are Jewish, so I've got to shock It's not a... It's an emotion. It's a time time of family. (laughs) We'll only be covering movies that come out on the Hallmark Channel during those uh, that season. I would do a I would do an episode on what the fuck that the Hallmark channel was. Jake, what is Scream? Uh, Explain to me, caveman Holden, <laughs> what Scream is. Oh fuck, the way way back machine <laughs> has fucked with us in the worst way. Why did my forehead grow eight sizes just now? God damn it. Fuck okay. Uh when fire make light on wall in move, it's it's called cinema. But uh, scary cinema got sad and not profitable. So younger writers said, what if we make fun of old wall lights and made a movie about the movies? And all of Hollywood was like, fuck yeah. And then Matthew Lillard was cast. Can you say Lillard? Jake, what is love? (laughs) It's what I feel for... Famed character actor, Matthew Lillard, <laughs> so, the man who would be Shaggy. 
So hopefully you've seen Scream before. If not, it is a bit of a murder mystery, and we will be giving away spoilers. That's what it is, though. It is a murder mystery mixed with a satire mixed with a slasher film. It's a slasher film about slasher films. Uh, always trying to remember to give a synopsis up top before we just immediately jump in. Directed by Wes Craven. Uh, it completely ch changed the game for the horror genre and as a whole, uh, well, we, when it we, came we out, we got to talk about it. Uh, so the seventy, we talked about. Uh, please go back to our Friday the Thirteenth episode. Yes. I really enjoyed that one. The the kind of slasher movie that was codified in the uh, late seventies kind of gr had had run its course by this time in nineteen in the nineteen nineties. Jason had gone to hell. Freddy Krueger was like. <laughs> Was and Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jason had taken Manhattan. Even uh, Halloween, the original, was like just kind of floating through nonsense. And just nothing was really clicking. It was no longer, even by horror standards, which is just like, you know, a couple, you know, dozens of millions of dollars. Yeah, and, and by the way, also, yeah, exactly. Like the newest franchise that had come out in this era was Leprechaun and yeah. Dr. Giggles. Like I nothing was hitting. Everything is becoming like direct to video when it comes to horror. Also, though, before Scream, you have to remember, like, no named, like, known household name actors really starred in horror movies. You had Jamie Lee Curtis, but she was born out of the horror film genre. Yeah, she wasn't a known so she, quantity. She was known as a horror film leading lady, right? Yeah. Uh, most everybody stayed as far away from horror as possible if they were already a big name because it, they considered it a potential liability to be associated with the genre. And it was also, you know, these were low-budget affairs that, uh, you know, were, were made for the midnight movie, were made for uh, the VHS store, and uh, considered largely to be schlocky even though now you know and i think our opinions have greatly changed when it comes to horror films of course as time has gone on especially now they're greatly revered even the ones that were considered that back in the day but for pretty good reason because as you mentioned halloween jason they're right. just an endless series of sequels that got worse and worse as the as you know with each one um and essentially Ernest had become scared stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it was just the genre and was needed a shot in the arm. And so uh, it got it with Scream. And do you remember where, like, did you have a relationship with the film? I uh, This falls into the category for me of older brother mm. situation where I remember my brother came home. I saw Scream 2 and 3 in the movie theater. And I, I know what you did last summer. And um, Urban Legend, you know, all that stuff after it. But I didn't see Scream until it came out on VHS and I rented it from Blockbuster. But I remember that wall of screams in the Blockbuster, right? Yeah. And and I remember my brother also coming home and just being, like, so excited to, uh, about this movie. It was, like, the perfect Friday night movie for his high school self to go with all of his friends and, you know, try to, like, hook up in the dark while watching this really just, to him especially at the time, smart, funny but also thrilling slasher movie with a bunch of sexy people. So, I, and by the way, I asked you a question, then answered it. That's fine. It's a podcast <laughs> for myself. Did you did you uh, have this relationship? The at all? actual uh, doing research for this, um, the release schedule of Scream made perfect sense to me because that's how it played out in my life. So the movie was produced by Bob Weinstein. Of course, another fucking Weinstein movie. I know. I was like, come on. Do I have to keep seeing this fucking guy's name? This is killing me. Uh, to be fair, this was the Bob Weinstein, not yeah. Harvey. Yeah. Uh, but it was still Miramax, still whatever. But uh, Bob Weinstein uh, wanted to bring back horror movies. He bought the rights to a bunch of stuff. And he was won the bidding war with this script. And uh, he was like, we're going to release it on Christmas. 
and that's not how he sounds, but you know, all movie producers. Christmas, I say, Christmas, ah, cigar, ah. Spider Man, Christmas. We're gonna release it on Christmas. See, <laughs> yeah. And uh, Wes Craven's like, that's what? What are you talking about? That's Christmas. That's the family movie season. And uh, Weinstein wisely said, like, no, because all the fucking lonely teens are gonna need to watch something, and there's nothing else to compete. It's gonna be the only cool thing in the theater. So you've open second, I believe, to uh, Beavis and Butthead to oh, America. Oh, it opened terribly. Perfect so, movie for teens. It opened time. terribly. It opened terribly. It got not even second, like maybe like third or fourth. Only six million dollars. But and this is how it happened to me. All the fucking weird kids that did go see it over Christmas because I don't know their dad hated them and they lived in a treehouse. <laughs> just whatever isolated teens that could just go see a movie by themselves came back to school and were ranting and raving about this movie. Yes, and that's, Word of mouth spread like wildfire. I, I and in just, the next month, all we could talk about, everything was about Scream. I just confirmed that too because that was exactly what happened with my brother. Yeah. He came up. He was just like, you've got to see this movie. It's the best. It's just got everything. It's got, you know, for especially for us at the time. And oh, this, uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm blown through so many fucking choice notes on my goddamn Google. Key. That's okay. We're gonna take yeah. a step. We're gonna start from the beginning here in just a second and but, really uh, tell the story of Scream. My beautiful fiance Marie uh, said it best that the thing she said it as a fan of uh, Dawson's Creek, but the thing about Kevin Williamson, he, the screenwriter, I can't he created Dawson's Creek. Oh yeah, this he, guy was the number one. He guy was the number one guy at the time. He nailed what teenagers wanted at that exact time. And what teenagers wanted was to hear teen characters talk the way they think teenagers talk. Like yeah. teenagers are inarticulate. They're just shy. They're like dumb. Look, you know, they look at the ground or just like confidently say bullshit. But in their heads, they think they're world weary and like clever. Right. And there's a specific thing about being a teenager where when you're a kid, you don't get references. You watch like uh, an episode of The Simpsons and there's 800 jokes that fly past your head. You see a poster with like a person you don't know and like everyone makes a big deal about it. All, everything about being a kid is just like not getting the reference. And when you're a teenager, you think getting the reference is so cool and adult, which yeah. is why all of Kevin Williamson's scripts are full of fucking references. And at the time, to that audience, it hit like goddamn morphine. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was it was a wave. It really felt like a wave, and it felt like a ch changing of the tide. And again, it was it was for the next what four or five years. Even there was a just a string of horror films inspired by the what Scream revived in teenagers when it came to the the franchise as a whole. So let's talk about. Let's get into it. Uh, first, I want to talk about Mr. Wes Craven. I'm going to not spend a ton of time on that. Also, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the sequels. We are going to uh, talk about the whole franchise, but we're really focusing on the first film. You and the rest of America. <laughs> two was good. Two was good. Two, two did was well. good. And I saw that one in the theater and ha enjoyed myself. And then three, I also saw in theater and was like, why am I here? What is happening? And Anyways. then four, I was like, oh, wait for the reviews. And the reviews were like, eh. And I was like, cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and I uh, just found out there was a Netflix or MTV show, rather. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, uh, Wes Craven, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and was raised in a strict Baptist family. He got an undergrad degree in English and psychology. Perfect, right? English and psychology, I think, would be good degrees for a future horror uh, savant, uh, uh, horror film, uh, uh, genius, 
Uh, he got those at Wheaton College in Illinois and a master's in philosophy and writing at Johns Hopkins University. So then he goes on to be a teacher at several different schools. And while he's teaching, he picks up a 16 millimeter camera to make short movies. And uh, that was his very amateuristic beginnings, but uh, his more uh, industry-related beginnings happened at a production company that he got uh, a job at through Mutual Friends, and which got him to move to Brooklyn. His first job, weirdly enough, was as a sound editor, essentially like an assistant under future folk rock star Harry Chapin. What? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Who taught him the ropes. Apparently he was like, he, he learned everything about uh, sound editing from him, and he was actually a really good uh, mentor to him during that time. Uh, his first feature, however, would be one that would be reviled by so many and still is, and also uh, helped give the title to uh, the last podcast on the left. That's right, the last house on the left. Was I'm sorry, what podcast? The last podcast on the left. Wait. Um is that like a new one? Oh yeah, totally new. No one knows about it. It was released in it's nineteen. Good for you giving a plug for a smaller podcast. You know, you, know, you got to use your platform. Trying to help out. It was released in nineteen seventy two, and uh, he didn't really think it was going to be seen by a ton of people. And so, as he put it, it gave me a freedom to be outrageous and go into areas that normally I wouldn't have gone into, and not worry about my family hearing about it or being crushed. Uh, and so, cause he went really wild with it, it involved a lot of. Very taboo subjects, murder, rape, things of that nature. It was very in-your-face, very ugly and grisly, and it ends up being screened by a way more widely than he ever ex uh, expected. And he was very largely ostracized due to the content of the film. It was basically the first of the video naughties, like just, yes. just a movie that just just too much. It just it broke whatever fucking line-in-the-sand society had made. Yes, and exactly. that only made it all the more appealing. But of course, that's what gets people uh, curious about it and coming out to see it, having that controversy. He uh, tries actually to get out of the horror business. He's always trying to get out of the <laughs> horror business throughout his whole career, by the way, and never quite could. It always pulled him back in. It was like um, Godfather or something. He tries to do this with different projects, but they all fall through. So he says, fuck it, fine, I'll make The Hills Have Eyes, which is about a family in Nevada and the Nevada desert fending off a tribe of cannibals, which was a big success in action. Hillbilly cannibals, the mm -hmm. worst kind the of cannibals. The worst, I'm not a read. Racist Tahitian, like Polynesian cannibals, great. Put me in a big stew pot, slice <laughs> carrots into the broth, hilarious. Hillbilly cannibals, uh, ugh. Terrifying. They're going to do butt stuff, probably. <laughs> so... Seven years later, he he made I believe he he makes he makes a few more movies after that that uh, aren't super duper successful. He then makes uh, with his partner Sean S. Cunningham, who you might remember from <laughs> the Friday the Thirteenth episode because that is the guy that co-created that film and directed it. He ends up they end up rather pulling together ninety thousand dollars to make a Nightmare on Elm Street in nineteen eighty four. That's going to be his real true breakout film. Of course, the horror classic. Years later, uh, by the way, he ends up writing and directing Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which I was sad to see that it didn't do well when it came out because I really liked New Nightmare. It uh, also kind of predated yes, Scream on the meta shit. On the meta shit, and that's why I bring it up to you, Jake, because that was really – he was already in that headspace before he even made Scream, even though he didn't write Scream. If you don't know New Nightmare, uh, there's that thing in Nightmare on Elm Street where like the lady, the girl's on the phone and then the phone licks her. Oh, it's the best. Oh, so ugh. Dream Warriors is my favorite, by the way. We're, we'll definitely do a Nightmare on Elm Street uh, episode at some point down the line, by the way. Uh, but 
Uh, new Nightmare is, um, yeah, they're making a new Freddy Krueger movie, and Freddy starts haunting the main actors who appeared in the very first film, uh, who is also appearing in this. Uh, really smart. I, I thought it was a really great Freddy Krueger film. Uh, one Up there on my list, I think. Um, but uh, it didn't quite do so hot, and uh, he'd had, he'd kind of... After Nightmare on Elm Street, he didn't have a ton of hits, really, again, until Scream happened. So, famously, Wes Craven was always uh, Weinstein's, Bob Weinstein's, like, number one pick for this. He had uh, rejected and passed on the movie several times, and uh, the two things that he claims put him over the edge was, one, the casting of Drew Barrymore, who at the time was the hottest shit, and you know what number two is? Desperation to make money after making so many flops. Okay, yes, real number two is this. Fake no- fake Hollywood number two is at a horror convention, an actual 12-year-old at a Q&A panel asked him when he would start making kick-ass movies again because the movies he was making were all lame. Oh, my God. So, anyways, we'll, we'll get more into uh, Drew Barrymore getting attached to the film in more detail in just a little bit, but I wanted to start with, first of all, Kevin Williamson, who we mentioned earlier, and how he came to write this film. Kevin Williamson started out in L.A. trying to be an actor just like me and uh, (laughs) failed miserably and then took classes on screenwriting at UCLA. He wrote a script that would become Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which would come out years later about kids that kidnap a a teacher uh, and try to prove their innocence after being accused of cheating on their exam, which would go on to get stuck in development hell, as they do, um, and put Williamson in the poorhouse. So he is now struggling very badly, and he's a lonely dude in L.A. trying to make it, but he's he's taking these classes. He's learning how to write write scripts and things like that. And one fateful night, sit, gather round, Jake, for a horror tale. Blair! Might scare you to your very bones. One night, Kevin Williamson was watching a news show called Turning Point about a man named Danny Rawling. In the early 1990s, a man in Florida named Danny Rawling murdered several college students, most of them all petite Caucasian brunettes with brown eyes that he usually stabbed in the back after sexually assaulting them and would do unspeakable things afterwards such as decapitating them and posing the bodies in lewd positions. Are you not mortified to your very core? No, I mean, I also did research on the topic. I, I'm well aware of the Gainesville Ripper. At the trial, he said he wanted to become a superstar like Ted Bundy, but he did not, did he? No. No one remembers him except for Williamson because he saw the news show Turning Point and he said, During the commercial break, I heard a noise and I had to go search the house. I went into the living room and a window was open. I'd been in this house for two days. I'd never noticed the window open. I got really scared. So I went to the kitchen, got a butcher knife, and got the mobile phone. Oh His my friend God. teases for, First him. of all, how high do you have to be to immediately be like, I'm going to get murdered because I just remembered murderers exist. That's a very specific kind of like, I mean, that's a fear that like, I feel like a 12 year old that's like home alone for the first time or not a 12 year old. Like, yeah, an 11 year old who's home alone for the first time. You just realize that like, oh, just because I'm inside a house doesn't mean that if someone wanted to, they could just be like, hey, I'm just going to murder you. I can just, yep, just look, look, the window's easy. I just broke the window. 
this means nothing. Safety is an illusion. I could, you can get murdered anyway. Well, you were very much like the person he called. He called a friend of his on the phone, and the friend immediately starts teasing him <laughs> for being act, acting ridiculous. And he starts telling him all these rules that horror movies have established in the past that he should abide by, such as never go outside and things of the like. Don't and run upstairs. He, he, he goes to bed. He's totally freaked out. He has all these intense nightmares, wakes up around three in the morning, and he just immediately starts writing this 18-page short story about a young woman being taunted over the phone in her home and then attacked by a masked killer. And he's so broke at this point. He's getting so desperate. He secludes himself in his Palm Springs home and puts all focus on a full-length strip script called Scream. Scary Movie. No, Scary Movie is the, the satire series. That's the, you know, like the Waynes Brothers. <laughs> yes, Scream was originally called Scary Movie, which I think is also a great title. But uh, it ends up getting changed later to Scream. He writes uh, a script called Scary Movie based on this short story. And then yeah, he just he uh, hold himself up in a, like a Palm Springs. Like he, he says yeah. he went to the desert and came back three days later. And then he also writes two five page treatments for sequels in hopes to make a better sell with a franchise pitch. So he's like, you know, really thinking ahead. And that is so fucking smart of him to do this. I mean, it's so funny. I feel like I always feel like anything I'm writing is inherently going to fail. So I'm never thinking, oh, yeah, this first script's totally not only going to get made, but also going to be a franchise. So I'm going to go ahead and jump on that so that I can make all the money. Just imagine, but like if you're in the head of a movie, if you're a movie producer, you're coked out, you're reading this great, at the time, revolutionary screenplay with this insanely tense opening segment. And then like, as you're like gasping for breath, like thinking about all the money you're going to make, you turn the page and there's the sequel treatment already there. Absolutely. See, so just just the just like, hey, more money. <laughs> what I do is I actually coat uh, all of my pages in gasoline just in case they want to burn it when they're done. <laughs> but then it goes up real fast and they're like, oh, this kid's onto something. <laughs> so according to his agent, the script was going to be impossible to sell. He takes around to several studios, and he it ends up at the opposite of impossible to sell. It ends up what every person always wants uh, who wrote a script in Hollywood. It is uh, in a bidding war with multiple <laughs> studios, and it all ends up going. It was original at one point. It was potentially going to go to uh, Oliver Stone, mm -hmm. but Miramax, which doesn't necessarily mean that Oliver Stone was going to direct it. It right. just means his production company was going to get it. exactly it ends up going to miramax's dimension films which uh so this is the thing uh i according to the two scream documentaries on youtube that i watch <laughs> dimension films had just been started up by bob weinstein for the specific purpose of kind of kick-starting genre films back up uh i believe he uh had bought up the halloween franchise and uh either friday the oh no hellraiser Dimension Films had already picked up the rights to Hellraiser and Halloween. Mm. And even though uh, it wasn't the highest bid, Bob got a hold of Williamson on a call and his at least like knowledge of horror history impressed him enough that like they gave it to Weinstein because he felt it would be in like capable hands. And he sold it for $400,000. No small sum by any means, especially for someone who was literally broke as fuck right before And, you know, it. Uh, if you adjust for inflation, that's like a gazibbly dillion dollars <laughs> now. 
Uh, Bob Weinstein takes the script to Wes Craven. He'd already read it. He was actually for a millisecond interested in directing it, but he was, again, desperately trying to get out of the horror business. Also, they they tried, they talked to Robert Rodriguez, Danny Boyle, George A. Romero, and Sam Raimi. Raimi would have been great for it, I think. It would have been a little, you know what? It would have been, been too d- silly, though, probably. No, you know what? It would have played up the, si- mm. I mean, in the idea, mm. there's like, the movie's a little bit uh, 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 kind of uh, two-faced. Because that opening sequence is so just straight down the middle, perfect horror. Yes. And then the later, like, kind of chase sequences have a lot of that Sam Raimi goofiness. Yes. So it's it's very weird. Idea, I mean, I would love, like, a one-two co-director thing. I mean, honestly, I would be interested in a version of Scream by all of these directors that I would just watch them, watch them back to back and, and have a blast. Well, in the sequels, the quote-unquote stab series of films uh the the movie within the movie were directed by robert rodriguez yes ex- oh right oh oh i'm glad you got that fact because i didn't uh, pull that <laughs> that's amazing so drew Mar- barrymore as you said before is what convinces craven to decide to direct since such a big names involved she read the script and just absolutely loved it and called them up and said i want a part in this movie she said i just read the script one night at my house and i just said oh my god there hasn't been anything like this for so long i loved that it actually got tongue in cheeky but it was still scary and it was this great game that sort of described genres and uh, revived them at the same time and redefined them all in one script i went bananas a really good summation too of what makes scream so great dimension films uh pushes back in a lot of dumb ways during the course of the making of this and other scream movies and they had williamson remove a lot of the gory content that was in his script but he luckily he was able to put it back into the script after craven signed on too bad they'd have to pull it again later Mm. but we'll talk about the mpaa's involvement in this film let's get to casting first though because this is a killer cast maybe one of the most perfect 90s casts of just like it's amazing like everybody in the only person missing was sarah michelle geller and she's in the sequel and of course she's in the sequel yeah uh and yeah chada pinkett too and but yeah this first one you've got Drew Barrymore, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Rose McGowan, and then the guys, David Arquette, you've got Skeet motherfucking Ulrich. Ulrich, dude, and fucking um, Jamie Kennedy, and of course, my little, little dog, Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, who's so good in this movie. This was his so big, good. this was his breakout hit. You Like, he was in minor Did roles. Did Empire Records come out at this point? I think it's- I think it had, right? I don't know. I not I he was double check. Double it was kind of like our like this was our brat pack essentially. Like you had with uh, uh, the eighties. Um, this was just everybody is such a big hitter, such a heartthrob too. Everybody, you had a crush on somebody in this movie if you were our age when this movie came out. Mine was definitely Rose McGowan. You know, it was like there was something for everyone in terms of teen heartthrobs. In terms of mine was Henry Winkler. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have that font. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh. Henry Winkler, too, is so amazing. And this was back when I don't think he was considered as great of an actor as he is, has established no, this in was his later like a, years. this was a John Travolta style. Hey, yes. remember this guy? Yes, Move. and and especially, you know, playing on the idea that, you know, he used to be the Fonz. Now he's the principal. He even has a little Fonz moment in the movie. And, and it was definitely a choice being like, hey, remember this? Yeah, exactly, this retro guy. So um, my favorite story from the casting process is the fact uh, that Matthew Lillard supposedly was just hanging out with his girlfriend who was trying out for a different role for a different project. And the casting director just kind of poked her head out and was like, 
hey you get in here and he read for the ski uh for the billy what's his name billy not uh Billy Prescott? No. Uh, I forget. Whatever. The uh, Skeet Ulrich role, the boyfriend role, and uh, eventually got the uh, got the stew, the friend role. And in the interviews, in the documentaries I watched, uh, Matthew Lillard says of his baby-like performance, man, I can't believe they let me do that. <laughs> Barrymore, by the way, she starts off signed on as Sidney Prescott, who uh, Nev, uh, Nev Campbell would end up playing. But she ended up switching to the opening scene character because a i think there were some schedule conflicts that disallowed her from being there as much as she would need to be there to play sydney but also she just loved that opening scene so much that that's the one that she really wanted to be in which was a perfect thing to happen a perfect domino to fall into place as the audience's expectation was that drew barrymore would be like one of the lead roles and no her face is the one on the poster yeah it's the one on the poster and she gets murdered immediately which is just immediately subverts everyone's expectations but she made this decision Five weeks before filming, which wow. is a massive upset. You know, this production, her star was on the rise. She was the the draw. And um, the fact is, is, when you think about it now, like, Nev Campbell did an admirable job as Sydney. She did great. She did great. But, like, the most iconic performance, like, the thing oh, that when yeah. you think of the movie Scream... You think of the fucking opening with well, Drew Barrymore. She, she's I acting mean, she her fucking so butt off. in it, dude. And she was she was running around to get out of breath. They had a story that Wes Craven would tell her about animal cruelty that would get her uh, to cry and get her all worked up. And then she'd go run around and get uh, so that she would be like breathing really heavy. And then they'd shoot. She just went for it. And you could tell that she loved. She believed in this project. No. That, to give it this, her all, and and it's it is that is but such also, an iconic scene. It's and really it, convenient that she's just like, hey, what if? Hear me out. I'm in the most iconic scene. Work less, still get a bunch of money, and everyone remembers me in the movie without having to go through all the other bullshit. Yeah, because uh, it was a five day shoot to get that opening scene done. They had done it specifically first to make sure Dimension didn't back out of the project because they were already kind of freaked out. Just there's every other kill in that movie is like a little bit goofy. There's like kind of slapstick comedy involved. It's um, it's 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 not it. They don't like let it breathe, uh, especially by the time we get to the infamous scene 118, the Stu's party, the night of a thousand dead teenagers. <laughs> it is just down the middle, perfectly shot hard. Like Wes Craven. The, the pacing of that opening is just, un, it is textbook. It is like, if you want to look at good horror pacing, study that opening scene over and over again. It is just so fucking well done. Like everything about it. It just starts so casual. It starts so chill and, and normal and just slowly devolves into just absolute fucking horrifying chaos. It's um, also uh, the first movie that I really like that uh, it, do you have to understand how long ago 1996 is? Because several times in the movie they're like, "Oh, a phone!" Haha! <laughs> like, and yeah. instead of the call is coming from inside the house, which was such a giant urban legend mega twist that like it haunted a generation. <laughs> instead, it's like the call is coming from a readily available cell phone, which is commonplace <laughs> technology in the 90s. But like you, it was still early enough that people didn't even realize that a person can be on a phone anyway. <laughs> Right, like right. that was a that was a shoe drop. Oh shit! Moment. They're like, oh right, phones are everywhere now. Right, phones are everywhere now. <laughs> uh, I do think that Nev Campbell did a fantastic job, and it's exactly why Craven chose her after seeing Party of Five. He said he felt she could play both innocent and self sufficient in a tough situation. She does give that quality of vulnerability while at the same time showing a strength. 
and it's a really cool uh, magic trick, I think. Also, Courtney Cox loved her reasoning for it. So Courtney Cox, huge hit with Friends, but also she's like, she, she said, well, I'll just let it speak for herself. She said, I think I was always known as being so sweet, and I said, I really can be a bitch. <laughs> and so she just wanted to, like, get out of that uh, sweet girl persona that she was portraying in Friends. Also, though, I love, like, thinking about, like, man, Courtney Cox, that must have been the craziest year ever for her. Like you're on the top of your, you are, you have the biggest hit show on television and one of the biggest hit movies in the theaters. Like, holy fuck. You must just feel amazing nailing all that at once. And little did she realize that all those years later, Fortnite would steal her dance from, from this Bruce Springsteen video. <laughs> and then, and then for a different guy to sue about that <laughs> dance, uh, claiming it to be his, Rose McGowan was pulled for her role as she could be, as her ca- as the casting director put it, spunky, cynical, but innocent. Uh, so they had these amazing... <laughs> Rose McGowan uh, tells a story where uh, she was actually cast first as the friend, and then um, seeing that Neb Campbell got like switched around as the lead was like, fuck. Like, nobody's going to remember me if I'm just also brunette, and she just immediately dyed her hair without consulting anybody. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Skeet Ulrich was seen as perfect for the part as he resembled the young Johnny Depp seen in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Also, He did uh, have big Depp energy in this movie. He also had previous experience with Nev Campbell in The Craft, and they felt that would help their chemistry out a lot. Matthew Lillard, as you said, was at the casting session, but I did want to mention Lisa Beach, the casting director that pulled him into the room because, man, she deserves all the awards. Uh, incredible work with this casting. The part of Dewey Riley was originally described as a, quote, hunk in the script, but Cra- Craven really liked David Arquette's softer approach to the role. I couldn't imagine Dewey as some badass guy, like, um, what's his name in Stranger Things? Like, I couldn't imagine that being the Officer Dewey role. You know what I mean? He's so fantastic as this goof up guy, um, the, the goofy cop guy. He claims that the reason he read for one of the kids, but he felt he uh, would be too old for that. Mm. And uh, Oh, yeah, he's the perfect goofy older brother. And uh, he claimed that he pushed for the Dewey role because he had a crush on Courtney Cox. And they got together on this movie. And then they had a weird marriage for 10 years. <laughs> and now he's like a porn guy. <laughs> and she's like... um. Dating, I think, the guy from Snow Patrol? <laughs> I, don't, I didn't go that deep into If you it. ever want to gaze into the heart of, like, a fucked up, like, a goofy, pathetic, but, like, lovable, weird man, just listen to any David Arquette interview on Howard Stern where it's just like, yeah, Courtney just said, you know, I have to consult her before I get tattoos. And I was like, I gotta be me, babe. <laughs> <laughs> There's a million good reasons to order delivery. Maybe you're killing it at work and you're not ready to go home, but you still need a solid dinner to help you finish that project. Maybe you're just in the middle of a gaming marathon, you got too hungry, and now you realize your fridge is empty. Whatever the reason, the fact is is that DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants no matter the city. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite dinner spot already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities. So you are very likely to find a new favorite place. All you have to do is download the app and check out what's available in your area. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states plus Canada, you can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and even the Cheesecake Factory. That's right, 
wield the power of a god by getting Cheesecake Factory food at home. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code WIZARD. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter the promo code WIZARD. Don't forget, that's promo code WIZARD for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. The voice of Ghostface was oh, done by this. Roger L. Jackson, and he was actually just supposed to be a stand-in, but Craven felt he was so damn good at the role that they were going to replace it with, I think, a lot of voice modulation and effects and stuff. And he was like, well, the voice this guy's box just is nailing like it. supposed to be, you know, key to the. It's it's a great uh, con- conceit. Yes, because like voice boxes don't change your voice into a different person's voice. Yeah, it just makes your voice sound real dumb. Right, and hard to understand. Yeah. But uh, he had, like, real voice actors love fucking busting out, like, just sick shit and menacing shit. Also, he uh, played two of my favorite voice acting roles of all time. Number one, Mojo Jojo on the Powerpuff Girls. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Yeah, he yeah, was Mojo I Jojo. Mojo Jojo. And this is, this is so dumb, but I love that this is the same guy. Uh, the, the voice of Ghostface, which carried out throughout the rest of the movies because, of course, anybody can get the magic voice box uh, that, you know, you go to Spencer Gifts right. and like, hey, give me the voice box that makes you sound like voice actor Roger L. Jackson. <laughs> he played the fucking Mucinex Goomba bo- bur- uh, Booger guy <laughs> from before T.J. Miller took over the role in like uh, the mid-2000s. That's you know, it's like, hilarious. Hey, I'm Mucus. I make you cough and stuff. <laughs> ah, oh, no, it's Mucin. That was the fucking screen That's guy. That's amazing. Uh, they, Remember I- when they gave the Booger guy a wife and kid? <laughs> and he's just like, this is my family. Hope no Mucinex doesn't come and kill them all. <laughs> I don't remember that, Jay. Oh, I, it scarred me. <laughs> I'm profoundly affected by the Mucinex guys. They uh, uh, One cool choice with Roger L. Jackson, he never met any of the cast. They would keep him on set, to, uh, and they would do the scenes with whoever he was doing the scenes with, but... He would he would always be hidden away from the actors so that to keep it more creepy to instill that weird feeling of not knowing who this person was. So one of the prop guys tells a story that um, while filming the uh, specifically the opening sequence with Drew Barrymore, he had set up a phone box that allowed Roger to talk to Drew Barrymore over a conventional phone line. But it was just a one way connection Mm -hmm. so that she could in real time like react and do all of her acting stuff. And uh, the box that they had constructed shorted out like the generator put out too much amperage and it just like fried the whole machine. So in a last minute desperation, they jerry rigged uh, the home that they were filming in phone lines so that they could keep the connection going. Uh, This resulted in a unfortunate incident in which during a particularly strong uh, improvisation scene. Drew Barrymore actually called the cops and had them (laughs) come over and they had to tell them they were filming a movie. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, principal photography took eight weeks in mid-1996. It was done on a budget of just $15 million, Ooh. which is so low. Oh, wait. Can I, uh, there's, this is, can I tell the saga of the ghost face? Give me that ghost face killer, son. Okay. So, the, 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 the villain, which has now kind of joined the ranks of horror villains from, uh, you know, it's, you go to the Halloween store, and it's, it's Jason, it's Freddy, and fucking Ghostface. Uh, in the script by Williamson, all that's listed is the, that the uh, thing has a quote-unquote ghost face. He's dressed in robes, and that's pretty much it. That's all they have to go on. And so they're getting all these, like, concept arts and, like, drawings from all these effects companies and prop companies, and nothing's looking right. Uh, the, 
the test things I saw, basically, I'm going to describe it as, uh, let's see, if uh, the fluke man from the X-Files had a had a butt baby with uh, Baraka from uh, Mortal Kombat. God, it's a fucking goofy looking weird thing that was supposed to be Ghostface. And nobody could really settle on a proper design. It was always described as just masked killer in the right. script, so super vague. While doing uh, location scouting, uh, I believe it was, it's either listed as Wes Craven himself or his uh, production assistant, uh, Marianne Madalena, uh, were scouting a location in one of the old, it was like an old haunted-ish, not haunted, but just creepy suburban house. And uh, in one of the abandoned children's bedrooms, was the iconic mask mm. like just just hanging out on a bedpost there's photos of it from the location scouting and there it is there's the fucking ghost mask and they're like this is it this is creepy it's like got a weird like halloween costume kind of feel we want this they sent it to dimension films they were like great uh make something like just change it up a little bit so we don't get sued the prop department comes up with all sorts of alternative versions. They like mm-hmm. uh, make it a little more fleshy. Did you get a look at any of those alts? At yeah, all? yeah, yeah. They're they're just like a little more plump. They're a little like weird, and more specifically, they're made out of like latex rubber. Wow. They're made like basically, it looks like a prop department had to make a bunch of them very quickly from malleable materials, and it didn't have that like panache yeah. that the original like Halloween mask did. It's it's an interesting concept to me. The idea of, like, how different did they need to make it to avoid the law? And that was probably a speculation they had to just make. But it's like, could you not just make a small alteration to, like, the eyes? And then it's a different, you know what I mean? They did, but it's just the, the, the literally, if they were too floppy. They were made yeah. of, like, just, just the prop company, just the prop guys just didn't have that, like, worn kind of matte plastic flimsy Halloween right. mask energy. Right. And so finally... Uh, when it came time to start shooting the initial the opening scene and the test footage, Craven made the call. They're like, just, just use the mask. Just, just he had he still had the original. He was like, just use the original. Just do just use it. It's this is what looks good on camera. This is what we're gonna do. Realizing that he fucked up, uh, the a legion of interns had to hunt down who made this mask, and it was this fun world amusements mm-hmm. based out of New England. The guy who answered the phone was like. Uh, just give us a credit in the, you know, just shout us out in the credits. Oh and uh, God. also, how about like, I don't know, $100? <laughs> and so for $100, they wow. got to use the mask. I uh, do hope that they at least, I mean, Halloween, I remember those first few Halloweens, especially after Scream came out, where it was just ludicrous with the amount of people dressing as Ghostface. If you want an official Ghostface mask, you can get it only through Fun World, a division of like Easter Universal Corporation. They must have made it they're, killing. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, they're specifically thanked in the credits, and um, the uh, it's just this weird serendipitous thing where like it's it had to be an old Halloween mask. Yeah, like you couldn't recreate it. And uh, serendipity is the name of the game when it comes to this first Scream movie. Everything just falls into place in such a beautiful way when it comes to the whole thing coming together. But of course, Dimension being the production company that they are, like all the production companies, they had to immediately flip out and try to change everything and got scared that it was not going to be a successful movie. Bob Weinstein, in particular, did not think the mask was scary enough and was like giving Craven a bunch of shit for it. The studio was worried after seeing the first series of dailies 
uh, and they started they considered dropping Craven from the picture. He then showed them a he had to go make a special cut of the opening 13 minutes in order to convince them to not fire him, which is fucking crazy to me. Um, the shooting, by the way, took place in Sonoma County in California. Drew Barrymore's character's house is actually across the street from the house they used in Cujo. Um, and uh, for the locations, the Weinsteins tried to get Craven to shoot in Canada because it is cheaper, but he stood his ground because he wanted this to look and feel in every way like an American film. He wanted it to be truly American, and that makes so much – like when I watch it, I feel it. It is so – it is just so my childhood in so many weird ways, like my perception of what child of what it was like to be – teenagers at that time remember all those there were so many movies that had teenager parties house parties at that time and i know they still make them but i feel like there was such a rash of them like can't hardly wait american pie like like they did house parties so well in the late 90s early 2000s like allow me to unsheath my segway katana for a second sink even though wes craven wanted a small town american setting it turns out he'd have to deal with a lot of small-town American problems to shoot the film. Oh, no. Are you going to talk about high school? I'm talking about the lovely, beautiful Sonoma County town of Santa Rosa. Oh, shit. And the fact that uh, it immediately bit them in the ass when they tried to film at the high school. Yeah. And this is the precursor to what we're going to be getting into later with the Columbine stuff and everything. But, yes, they were immediately freaked out about you know, kids getting killed in a high school. And they, so uh, the Santa Rosa is this beautiful town. A lot of the shots are taken there, but uh, that year the community was rocked by the brutal stabbing and torturing of a 12 year old girl. I believe it was actually three years before, but oh, okay. still the, the small. I believe. I, yes. They have a huge debate about it. The well, whole also town. the, uh, the school board had agreed under the auspice that they were filming a comedy ah, and hadn't yes. bothered to check the uh, script. That's a lot of how they tr- all from the very beginning how they tried to frame things in order to get away with more of the violence and gore that we get, which we'll talk about again when we talk about the MPAA. So yeah, you the whole the town has a debate, and everybody a thousand people show up to do their like you know town hall yep speech yep, and uh, it lasted. I believe it lasted for did, uh, did it last for multiple days? I think I, I it was just a cluster. It was a huge news crazy, stories yeah. just pure. A hundred percent like satanic panic alarmism. They end up moving the shoot from the high school to Sonoma Community Center for the high school scenes. They and change it, a couple it, of signs. They they yeah. literally rent lockers and just line the hallways with them. It felt like a high school. I didn't. I would have yeah. never thought that was not in a high school mm-hmm. until I read about that. That is, it's really crazy. But we this will be a story connected to Scream for a long time. Uh, previous or future crimes being a reason why um, that stifles this these horror films in different ways. So we'll get to more of that stuff later, even though a real crime, a series of crimes also influenced it. <laughs> Jake, let me Blair! tell you. Blair, uh, spooky October, Blair. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the special effects, let's talk about it. The special effects and makeup were done by three of the greatest ever. Three goats who got together um, after doing horror films together, you've got Howard Berger, 
He starts out on B-horror films. Most notably, he worked on Evil Dead 2, mm. which kicked off a long-lasting working relationship with I Sam Raimi. He also did effects for Nightmare on Elm Streets 4 and 5, New Nightmare. He did so many other movies. He did, he's on a million movies. He's Tarantino's guy, and so are these other guys, by the way. They're all connected, right? So Misery from Dust Till Dawn. Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, Green Mile. It's it just, their credits are absurd. Robert Kurtzman is another one. One of his first gigs was Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. He also worked on Evil Dead 2. Uh, and again, he's the Tarantino guy. He was mentioned in the Tarantino episode because he wrote, co-produced, and did the effects on From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, he also did a lot of the same movies uh, that I just mentioned, of course, because this is a trio. And you also have Gregory Nick. Totero, Nick Totero. I didn't get into the uh, special effects guys. So He's the first. Me. His first big gig was George A. Romero's De Day of the Dead, which is where he met Berger and both of them and Kurtzman all worked together for the first time on Evil Dead 2. After which, in 1988, they formed a company called KNBEFX Group. That's their initials, KNB. That's their last names, rather the initials, first letter of the last names. This led to the just they've done Raimi, Tarantino. Walking Dead, Kill Bill. I mean, come on. I mean, they're, they're, if you need blood on a thing, yeah. we'll put blood on that thing. Visceral, too. I mean, all of the, the you know, Tarantino's violence is so like it's ju it's just so vibrant and and I can't I can't. I, it's hard for me to describe it as saying the word like thick. It's like chunk. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, no, it, everything has visceral. impact. It, Every shot matters. It's visceral, and and uh, that is how it, I definitely felt. Uh, back when I first saw Scream, I was just like, man, these stab the stabbing in this just feels more intense for some reason. It's, it's not like, a, yeah, it's not like a machete as like just a magic death wand. That yeah. Just like, and now you're dead, and now you're dead. Right. Like, no, th this is a knife, and it is cutting people. Yeah, it's going through, it's going into them, you know, especially as that Matthew, as Matthew Lillard said, it went too deep, man. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I God, I, I love fuck it. Lillard's final like yeah, it's so good soliloquy. I don't know what it's called. Just as everything he says after he after he gets stabbed is fucking gold. It's so good. He's he's gold the whole damn movie though. He's amazing. Everything he does in that movie is amazing. Uh, every choice is so strong and over the top. So they used a mixture of corn syrup and food dye and concocted uh that together to create. 50 gallons of fake blood for the film. Um, and, of course, they even have the line in the movie about how horror blood is corn syrup and food dye, which is actually my sketch comedy group, Murder Fist. We used that same formula when we did our it's stage It's actually blood. a terrible formula. It's, like, just, just it really just... It's sticky. It solidifies. You it can like, eat it at least, but it's sticky, man. It's, it's gross. If you use food dye and get it on your skin, it'll, like, stay it'll for stay, yeah. weeks. It'll stay for, for a a couple days, Matthew. Uh, so, so, uh, so, if you get the cast talking about uh, the filming of this movie, uh, the entirety of the stew party final act, uh, you know, just from everyone arriving to like literally the final scenes in the movie, is considered a single scene. It's scene one eighteen, and Lillard and Ulrich and uh, Neb Campbell talk about how they would just have to sit around for days. It took 21 days to shoot the whole thing. Uh -huh. And like, oh they would just be caked with, with uh, corn syrup, just physically playing with like their stuck body parts uh, for continuity's sake. They couldn't wash their clothes or even get a fresh change of clothes because the blood splatters had to be consistent. Mm. And so by the end they were just 
uncomfortable, <laughs> gross, covered in yeah, flies. Yeah, like you can't touch anything. You yeah. can't like it's so awful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and it's to brutal. the point where the cast and the crew literally handed out "I survived scene 118" T-shirts at the wrap <laughs> of shooting. That's amazing. Um, they used collapsible blades for stabbing scenes as well as collapsible a uh, collapsible umbrella for the finale. Oh. Skeet Aldrich actually wore a protective vest while a stunt woman stabbed him with the umbrella, but she missed one of the takes and got Ulrich on an old wound from uh, he had a wound from previous open heart surgery and she just happened to catch that exact point on him and his reaction was very genuine <laughs> and it ended up in the final cut of the film so that is a real oh fuck you just stabbed me uh, look he's giving <laughs> uh and uh yeah uh, uh, it's called acting <laughs> i love how like 90 percent of every time we talk about a horror movie it's literally like no, we actually did torture a bunch of people, but like they signed a contract and we paid them, yeah, so it's fine. Exactly. But we used like all like all the shots where they weren't explicitly being tortured, we threw away. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're just watching people get tortured. Steve Orth, uh, Barrymore's character's boyfriend, the that initial death was very difficult to do. It involved the character's guts rolling from the place where uh, he was opened up uh, from his rib cage to his pelvis. He had to sit in a backless chair connected to a fake abdomen filled with guts. Barrymore also had a gutted shot, but that consisted of an entirely fake model. Oh, it looks very fake. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, the music, Marco Beltrami, again, another person who was totally new, totally fledgling in his career, much like Williamson, who wrote it. Craven asked, actually asked for new composers. He wanted a fresh perspective to, to the film score. They searched old chat rooms to find this guy, right? Whoa, really? Yeah, they actually went on proto-internet to like, hunt down this guy, and this was his first major gig. Beltrami had never scored a film before, and he'd never done a horror score before either. Craven liked his previous work. He invited him to view and score the first 13 minutes that Craven had cut together to convince the studios to let him stay uh, on as director. And uh, he ends up passing with flying colors. But also Craven and his editor, Patrick Lucier, are working directly with Beltrami to, to, to show him how to, to do horror scores, especially for slasher films, especially stings. Those moments, the, like the, 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 that accent moment to give you that jump scare. Because this did a lot of fake jump scaring in really smart ways. They literally did the, oh, just a cat. Yeah, moment. exactly. They, 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 there's a ton of them. But I also love how it's like, oh, jump scare. But in your head, if you've seen the movie before, you're like, actually, though, that is the real killer. Um, of course, when she's with, uh, when Sydney's with her future murderer boyfriend, whatever, uh, in that second scene in the bedroom, you hear Don't Fear the Reaper very slowly playing a, a slow acoustic cover of the song. And, of course, that's signifying, like, uh, as they're making out and stuff, like, this is the killer, this is the killer. If, but, if you... oh, but, again, the movie has layers because they also point out that, like, horror movies are full of red herrings. Yeah. Totally. So, totally. like, if they make it too obvious at first, that means he's not the killer. Exactly. And they, they break their own rules a lot, right? Um, Lucier looked at it like a Western score, actually. And uh, had a bit, his big influence was Ennio Morricone. And that does make sense. It has a spacey vibe to it. It's got, like, a, a very kind of distant sort of that woman singing Sidney's Lament, that song. It's very That song ends up being Wait, I, reused in, like, every Scream movie. Uh, can we actually marry... Precious Mary, wonderful audio goddess. Uh, can you actually give us a little bit of uh, Sydney's Lament?
Did I do a good job? It's, you're like a one-man YouTube, Holden. <laughs> That's what they called me in high school, before YouTube was a thing. It was weird. Uh, so who is not going to love a teenage movie? <laughs> Uh, who does not love a uh, a teenager movie with the song "Schools Out" in it? I'm so glad "Schools Out" in this movie. Something about everybody leaving school with the song "Schools <laughs> Out" playing that just always fills my heart with such warmth. I just love it so much. And man, Red Right Hand is oh dirty used, in this movie. It's used so good to perfection, oh, especially so for good. a lot of kids. Like that was the first time they heard this cool spooky song. Yeah, and it oh, it's perfectly used in the movie. Craven ends up spending two months on the edit, and this is when we talk about the MPAA and the issues that they had with these fuck boys, I'm going to call them. Mm. They wanted to give it an NC-17 rating. They were just really having a hard time with the violence, especially in that opening with Barrymore. And um, Steve Orth is the name of that character, and his death and all the guttings and everything. Craven had to send eight different versions to the MPAA. That must have been fucking aggravating as hell. Well, literally, one of the weird secrets at the MPAA is that it is just random suburban parents yeah. from around California. So it was probably a bunch of the same people from Santa Rosa yeah. that were that were like, mm, this movie is bad. So Bob Weinstein finally has to intervene. He explains to them that they're too focused on the horror elements, not respecting it as a comedy. Just like I said before, he's using that comedy defense. Um, Do you believe that that's what Bob Weinstein did, or did he blackmail and threaten to sexually torture? Probably that. Listen, well, you don't want my brother Harvey yeah, to come pay exactly. a visit, do you? No. Uh, uh, so give the movie a nice R rating. So just before the release, they just last minute get their R rating. NC-17 ratings are death, by the way. They, they Usually a lot of movie theaters just ref- outright refuse to show an NC-17 yeah. movie. It just it, it essentially will make your movie a failure in the box office like period um unless you're showgirls in which case you're a <laughs> once in a lifetime artistic trend <laughs> uh yeah and and so it comes out but i will say this you know what i thought though the thought that i had as much as i'm always like oh fuck that shit fuck the mpaa like censoring this movie i feel like the softening of it that they gave it actually made it probably more palatable for the teen audience and made it more of a success in the end i would i would i would it does. We'll never know, but it feels like this movie is a mass appeal movie horror film. It stands better as a mass appeal movie with the shots of like. So like uh, one of the things they yeah like you mentioned Steve's guts. They were okay with showing Steve's guts, but then the shot that they wanted to use has Steve guts physically spilling out of his abdomen. Yeah, uh, a term that's used in the MPAA notes a lot is quote unquote moving blood that you can see yes. a bloody corpse. But so it's having weird. blood gush, having the actual viscera moving on screen is too lascivious, yeah. too too taboo. Right. And so and, and I think thing that has changed largely since this point, but it, I, I do think it actually helped in the end. So this movie, it comes out, it grosses over one hundred seventy million dollars worldwide. And that's not too shabby off of a budget of 15 million. It revives, as we said, the horror genre. You get all these we consider it the post scream uh, effect, right? I mean, all these to this day, we're still talking about. I still know what you did last summer. Yeah, the Citizen Kane of modern cinema, exactly. Which Williamson also wrote. Uh, Urban Legend, Halloween H two O, Bride of Chucky. It re- it re- not only revitalized the horror genre for these teen slasher movies that were started coming out. Also, the old franchises got a refresh because of all of this. It. Totally made slasher flicks cool again. It also made being a horror buff 
a cool thing to be, which I think is really neat. It, it made being a nerd in a certain way kind of cool. And man, I just remember it completely having such a huge splash, so much so that, as you might recall, Williamson, when he pitched Scary Movie, he attached to it two five-page proposals for sequels, and st it was stated in his contract, actually, if the first one was successful, there would be a franchise after just the test screening, because it was so successful, they immediately lock Williamson in for two more, and they immediately lock Wes Craven in for two more. They get the surviving cast back, along with uh, composer Beltrami and editor Patrick David Lucio. Arquette apparently had um, several shots of him getting put into the ambulance, and the one where he actually made a thumbs up to the camera was the <laughs> one used, and he was like, oh, sweet, I guess I'm in the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, now Sydney is in college, and she's dealing with copycat ghostface killers. Also, she's now, it's all about the rules of a sequel, and that playing in that meta space. Um, there were leaks of the script, though, because now everyone knows, oh, it's a huge deal, who is the killer at the end, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is so important, and they know it has that murder mystery element. They No one was worried about that before, so the script leaks, and it, it's devastating for the whole project mm -hmm. because now that everybody knows who the killers are in the original script, Williamson has to scramble to rewrite the whole thing um, and very last minute. Also, he's writing fake endings. The actors aren't allowed to see the final pages until the day of shooting. It's just this awful mess and really has a very detrimental effect on the picture. Craven, too, is now fucked. He's rushing production schedule every single day is a last minute. Here's a script. Here's the new scene. And he's got to plan his shots out on the fly, um, and be also because a victim of its own success, there's a lot of shit going down. Craven only has six months to turn this thing around because they're trying to capitalize on its success. The you've also have you know the other actors are now more successful and therefore things are more difficult in that sense. They add new cast members: Sarah Michelle Gellar, Laurie Metcalf, Jada Pinkett, Leif Shriver. Technically, um, Leif Shriver is in the first movie. Like it is. Uh, I forgot the name. But the guy who was falsely accused of murdering oh. uh, Sydney's uh, mom, yeah. it is like literally Leif Schreiber got a call from one of the Weinsteins. It was like, hey, show up to this. And he was like, well, I got to just stand in front of a police house. Uh, 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 <laughs> what, what do you call it? A police house. Uh, a police station. Yeah, police station. Uh, and be yeah i just have to stand from a police station great you know when we're an hour into an episode where we start saying shit like police house <laughs> yeah. yeah i've been making caps too like crazy uh the last like five minutes no it makes it it makes us um relatable and 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 you know we're we, we have faults and, and weaknesses just like our trash listeners i'm gonna go to the mail house tomorrow to drop off some envelopes oh you mean the flat words <laughs> Oh, you have a so you have some flat words I you got to put words. in the mailhouse. I must slip into the slot of the mailhouse. Uh, it had an increased budget of twenty four million dollars, not that much more. Still a pretty cheap affair for um, a big hit movie. It was shot in L.A. and Atlanta in nineteen ninety seven. And Craven this time attempts to pull the wool over the MPAA's eyes. He sends them this outrageously violent cut of the film so that he can essentially be like, "Oh yeah, you don't like that." Okay, cool. Well, here's my new cut, which was the intended cut of the film. A classic Way movie. more tamed down. But they approved the super violent cut of the film. 
So I'm not sure if they changed anything after that or how much of that they kept, but they Bob were... Weinstein just showed up in front of one of the MPAA people's house with just like a watch and a sword. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, Scream does about the same in the box office. So, again, a big success. And Scream 2 was good. Scream 2 was good. Scream 3 sucks ass. But Scream 2 was pretty solid. Scream 3 just becomes the thing it was making fun of, which is the general response of the critics. Mm. It also heavily suffered. Scream 3 was written, actually written by another person. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But first, I want to tell you a spooky tale. In 1998... A 16-year-old and his 14-year-old cousin stabbed the 16-year-old's mother 45 times. The boys claimed they were inspired by Scream and Scream 2 and planned on going a killing spree using the mother's money and buying a ghost-faced mask and using the voice changers. That really happened, though, so it's very tragic. Uh, It's, uh, you know, the movie says, you know, the killers themselves in Scream 1 says, Uh, Movies don't make psychos. Uh, Movies just make psychos more creative. Yes. In 1999, another creative psycho, a 13-year-old, was uh, 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 two creative psychos stabbed a 13-year-old several times. They were 14 and 15 years old, very young, and it came out that they had just watched Scream, and there were drawings of the ghost face mask in the stabber's possessions. This is really starting to give the film and the franchise a lot of heat also in 2002 a 17-year-old in france stabbed a 15-year-old 42 times what i don't understand how you can stab someone that many times i just don't even get it i i, I whenever i hear that i'm like 42 my fucking arm would hurt after 10 you i assume I mean? they like you know after like 12 stabs they took a break had some gatorade kind of like refocused <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> loosened up uh yeah. by 30 you switch arms you kind of like you know go southpaw with it and apparently the uh, 17-year-old was wearing the Ghostface mask and later told police he wanted to kill someone like Ghostface in Scream. I mean, it's, Very fucked up stuff, man. There's, that's so tragic. I, we're in a weird... It's, we're in a very weird place where, like, we've just learned enough about, like, human psychology where, like, the religious, like, you know, the, the moral uptight thing of just, like, the movies will make them all tear. Like, we'll just create zombie people out in the streets. But, like... No, like people who are disturbed get ideations from the things around them. And mm-hmm. like whether it's a weird suicide, like rash of suicides uh, or just like, yeah, copycat, like movie influence killings. Yeah, people get their ideas from the stuff that's around them. It's not going to movies don't create people who murder, but the murders will often help form the ways that the murders are expressed. It's it's a it's a chicken and egg thing. And, uh, you know, and you know what? No, no. I'll save it for my final for my final weirdness. Your final thought, the Jerry Springer final thought. Um, so the biggest example that had a very large effect on the franchise as a whole, and especially on Scream 3, was the Columbine High School shooting. This happened right around when production began for Scream 3, which, by the way, was released two years after Scream 2. Um, and it had a budget of $40 million. So every time the budgets are getting bigger and bigger, at one point, that, because this, uh, when the Columbine Massacre happened, if, if you haven't, you know, look it up if, if you want to know more, but I, you probably know about what happened. But one of, the big, one of the main things that went down during the aftermath was there was a huge microscope on the effects of violence on children from video games and movies in particular. And at one point, while they're going into filming, the studio straight up demands... No on-screen violence or blood. 
Craven steps in immediately. He says, be serious, guys. Either we make a screen movie or we make a movie and call it something else. But if it's a screen movie, it's going to have certain standards. Williamson, victim of his own success, now is way too tied up with other projects. So when he gets approached for a script, he just does an outline for the film. And hilarious, they get a guy named Aaron Kruger to write the script. And, and this causes a ton of issues. It's, again, another rushed situation. Kruger even kind of talked shit about having to write someone else's story later on. I don't think he got along with Craven very well. It just was not a good scene. Again, Craven's in the situation where he's getting rewrites the day of, and everything is being affected by this Columbine thing. Hollywood, or it's set in Hollywood, largely because they had to stay as far away from any schools possible to tell a story. There was going to be a whole... The ending was totally different. Matthew Lillard was supposed to return. He was supposed to have actually not died at the ending of Scream. And he was uh, coordinating all of this from prison, the murders of high school kids. And then eventually, um, Sydney, played by Nev Campbell, of course. Uh, and they scrapped that because of Columbine. It just seemed like... Yeah, the in Scream, it's like kind of... In Scream 3, it's kind of just really like, ha-ha, the mastermind behind everything was me. Some random person. Three, it was like three people. They yeah. were like, okay. Yeah. I've seen this before. And that was what I was talking about, how it became a victim of the, its own thing. It was satirizing. Like, like it, it, it made its own rules about what every, you know, movie was going to be like. And then by the third one, you're like, yeah, I saw this. I saw <laughs> last. It was Scream 2. Yeah. I know, multiple killers. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember being very disappointed in the movie theater. And that was back when I kind of liked everything. And I was even like, yeah, that was fine i guess um and so it just it was just they and it was really weird too because they're getting all these rewrites in so they're they shot like all of this extra footage so that they would try to avoid having to do reshoots it just sounded like a mess uh in every sense of the word and it did okay in the box office but critically it was just totally panned as i had mentioned before then you have scream four which i also, again, didn't really know about. It came out in 2011. It starred David Arquette, Nev Campbell, and Courtney Cox, along with Hayden Panettiere and Emma Roberts and other newcomers to the role. It focuses on the rules of remakes, which sounds very like a smart approach. And it was actually written by Kevin Williamson, so that's another good one. And Wes Craven directed it, and this was actually his last film that he made uh, before passing away three years later from brain cancer in 2015. And yes, it did not do well in the box office. It didn't go great with critics. And they did note, though, that the general consensus is that it was better than Scream 3. I'd like to check it out at some point. Again, focusing on the first film mainly on this episode. And um, because, like, they were actually originally going to make a fifth and sixth movie, or at least they were talking about it, but then Craven passed away, and the poor po box office performance essentially locked that um, out of possibility. However, in 2018, Bloomhouse Productions has been attempting to do a possible revival since 2018. So you, who knows? It might be back in the theater. It definitely hit TV screens. The Scream TV series was developed for MTV. The series has been running for three seasons starting in uh, 2015. They moved it to VH1 and was rebooted in 2019. Uh, they redesigned The Mask, which apparently Craven had a problem with. It is available on Netflix. And it uh, is, you know, it brings things up to date. You know, there's like viral videos as part of the murders, things like that. I think they tried to modernize it, but I haven't heard like a ton, a ton about it necessarily. It's, it's you know, very weird. It's a show for kids, but it's 
It's not Scream needs to be an R-rated movie in the theaters. That's a big part of it, you know. It well, it I think it needed to be what it was, which was this '90s reboot yeah. of the slasher genre. Just, yeah. I remember as a kid, and even rewatching it this week, the we the opening scene of Neb Campbell as Sydney Prescott. She's just clacking away on her like IBM 386 computer that's uh-huh. in her bedroom, and like as a you know that was of its time. That was. You know, that was fresh. That was exciting. You know, there were, yeah, there were cell phones. There were computers. There were all this stuff. And now Scream with viral videos feels weird. That feels like a, it feels like that should be a different thing. Like, thing. Oh, and, and is slasher really the thing that needs to be redefined in the horror genre right now? I don't know that that's true either, you know? No, we need our, we need the spooky monsters again. We need like. Yeah, I feel like if anything, you're going to reinvent like, I don't even know. I mean, people are reinventing it with Get Out and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And, and it mid, follows. Midsummer. Yeah, those those are the reinventions. Scream kind of became iterative of itself. The Babadook. Yeah. So, Jake, your final thought. <laughs> <clears throat> Hold on, let me just do some some of the, my okay, magic powder. On boxing gloves, just to give a final thought. That's very odd. Okay, so have you uh, reached true girl form? <laughs> Flowing blonde hair. Yeah, oh my god, you guys! I can't even see Jake because the blonde hair is covering my eyes. Um, so. The whole deal with Scream, the thing that made it like this metatextual thing was about how like it acknowledged the rules and the tropes of slasher movies. You know, like uh, don't say I'll be right back. Don't have sex. Don't drink. And it was still like a superficial reading of horror movies because we've done so many horror movie things. And the recurring thing besides fucking the Weinsteins (laughs) is that like it's, you know, it's a weird moralizing kind of thing where, you know. It's not that like, oh, don't have sex. That's the rule. It's don't have sex because it's going to have sex because it's going to it's supposed to titillate the audience. But then you feel shame for being titillated. So you got to kill the source of shame. Uh, The final girl has to be a virgin because as a society, we want to see our traditional values upheld. Like the the idea of why horror rules exist, like they acknowledge the rules, but they didn't go one step deeper. And I feel like. Horror is this psychologically captivating thing. It's the only genre where a nobody can just create imagery and characters so just twisted and compelling that they can rise to the top of the box office. cheaply. Yeah. So, like, it was fun. It was exciting. It was meta. But I don't feel like it was – but meta without depth doesn't last very long. And now we're living in, like, an era of true psychological horror where they're, like, kind of talking about – all sorts of things that spook us out, you know. Every yeah. yeah, you mentioned Get Out, you mentioned Midsummer. I mean, I think what scre- what what made Scream work was that it wasn't just meta, it wasn't just um, a really good murder mystery. It was oh, it you was know what I mean? flawlessly executed. Yeah, I yeah. Can't... It was flawlessly executed meta, but you're right. Like, but but yeah, in my head, I'm like, there shouldn't have been two sequels. Yeah. I, or three or four or whatever. I, I, it really is such a standalone thing. And yes, the sequel, what Scream Two, was arguably a strong movie. But even then, it was like, we know the new rules you guys made, and none of this is novel anymore, right? So sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. Um, the Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, that's kind of it. It's just, uh, like, it was of its time. It was a shot in the arm, but it, like, we're, we still have further to go. Like, literally, the human emotion fear is a boundless wealth for creativity. Uh, also, it was uh, 
real dumb when Wes Craven is just in a Freddy costume mopping the yeah, floor. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a great part. Oh, that's such a funny part. I laughed part. out loud. That's such a great cameo. Um, And I was going to end with this, that it was uh, horror films, fake, ho- fake violence and terror that created Scream, but it was actually real violence and terror that ended Scream mm. with uh, Columbine and all of those other murders. And I think that that's such a crazy... Thing happening in the background as well uh, and says a lot about where this country was headed uh, at when it did all go down. Well, that's it. I think that's our episode on Scream. That's one of our It spooky. was Jason's mother in the first movie. <laughs> you idiot. You idiot. Um, it, uh, that, that was a lot of fun to do. Uh, that was a big part of my childhood for sure. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back with more spooky content in October. And yeah, if you want to check us out on Patreon to support us further, uh, honestly, uh, both Jake and I, each of us have received a lot of really like loving words from you guys. And I just want to say thank you uh, to the folks that have just reached out just to say, hey, the show uh, is a big part of my day or whatever you have to say that's so kind. And I, I really do appreciate that, especially in an internet landscape that can be so atrocious at times, which you can learn more about on our bonus episodes on Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We recently had a discussion based off of an essay that Jake and I both read about why the internet got so gross. Um, that is just an example of some Listen, of the stuff we talk about. Just because it's a great episode that has been receiving universal praise and would help support this podcast and give you a reward of great, almost uh, uh, a year's worth of bonus, multiple years worth of bonus episodes, doesn't mean they should go to patreon.com slash whizbrew and support us patreon.com forward slash whizbrew also you can follow me twitch.tv forward slash holdnator ho jack oh that was so goddamn spooky <laughs> check out my nips man they are frightened is that your plug your nips <laughs> check out my <laughs> adult man nipples <laughs> Uh, which I post regularly on Twitter in true uh, girl at form. best jake young <laughs> in true girl form postman nipples uh, yeah, at Best Jake Young on Twitter, right? Yeah. And uh, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a spooky night in the <laughs> podcast room. Ugh. And Jake the Wizard grew a womb. <laughs> Everyone laughed and danced the bunch. Go for him. That was really sweet. That's a good improv. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 911, what's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're gonna make it out of here, we gotta work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. This is why you watch 7 News at 5. This breaking story is happening as we speak. To get breaking news from the alert desk. When I know about it, you'll know about it first. So you're always connected with what's happening now, only on 7 News at 5.